world, this is the Max McGuire Show. This is our last chance to take this country back. That's true. Listen, it doesn't matter that Joe Biden is losing his mind. He still betrayed this country. Come on, man. So get ready, because the Max McGuire Show starts right now. Welcome back to a special edition of the Max McGuire Show. My name is Max McGuire. Got to talk about this issue a little bit in the first episode that I did. Um, I wanted to make sure I was able to give it as much attention as it deserves because I cannot stress enough how significant the leaked Dodds versus Jackson women's draft decision. I cannot, I cannot put into words. I'm going to try to, obviously I have to speak over the course of this whole, whole show, but it's really hard to completely wrap my head around how significant this is. On Rumble, the title of this episode is I Never Thought I'd Live to See a Day. I didn't. I hoped. I thought it was possible, but I didn't think we would get a decision like the one that I'm going to go through over the next 30, 45 minutes. And obviously, full disclosure, as I mentioned earlier on the show, there is no guarantee that this draft will survive into the final version. The way it works is obviously five Supreme Court justices have voted to overturn Roe versus Wade. Alito was assigned the authority, the, the responsibility of writing the opinion. He writes the draft, brings it back to the other four, and as long as they agree with it, that's it. That's the final version. Usually they want edits, they want things added, they want things taken out, so it's usually a compromise. But it is a very good sign that Alito was assigned the majority opinion and that they already had five votes for it. Learning today... Up on the screen, this is a release from the Supreme Court of the United States confirming that the draft that was leaked yesterday is, in fact, authentic. As someone who has read a lot of these court briefs, court decisions, I knew almost instantaneously it was authentic. That would be something very hard, very difficult to create. I mean, obviously, anyone can do it, right? But the formatting, the research, the citations, it's not your average. It's not the average like forgery. A lot of effort would have to go in to make a forged draft decision like that. So I I immediately suspected I, I would have money on that being legitimate. But now we have from the Supreme Court it being confirmed that's legitimate because John Roberts has authorized an investigation. The marshal of the Supreme Court will now investigate it. Um, I still was, I spent a lot earlier today looking through the laws, trying to figure out what the laws say. This is kind of like an honor system thing. Obviously, if they were hacked, that would bring criminal statutes into play. Um, but this has always kind of been on the honor system that when there are draft decisions, you just don't release them. Now, you have to go back. If you go back to the 1800s, there are situations where decisions were leaked in advance. But in the modern age, this has never happened before. It's very significant. You see the protests happening around the country. That is why this was released. I've seen a few people today suspecting that this draft was released um, to kind of take the wind out of the sails of the 2000 Mules documentary, Dinesh D'Souza's documentary. I don't know if, if I believe that. Um, I guess stranger things could have possibly happened. The magnitude of it, though, the magnitude of a leak from the Supreme Court I have a hard time believing it would be for that reason, though I'm sure there are plenty of people, plenty of people in the media who are more than happy to cover this story and avoid covering 2000 mules. Uh, I'm not going to see 2000 mules. I didn't get tickets. I got, I got tickets to Dr. Strange and the multiverse of madness. When I go to the movies, I like to kind of relax, sit back and just be entertained. I don't really like to go to the movies to work. <laughs> so I'll watch it when it's uh, on home video, which I believe is a couple days later. Um, I know plenty of people are going. I just, I, I'm, I'm not convinced that this was released to take the wind out of, of that documentary sales. That this is a really significant. I mean, I, I hate when liberals talk about this when they talk about like, oh, we need trust in our institutions. But earlier today, I was talking with Josh, and Josh made a very good point that our society works only as long as we believe in it. Right. The minute that we all stop paying taxes is the minute that society collapses. Now, they'll arrest most of us. But if everyone truly stopped paying, the system would collapse. If everyone stopped obeying the law, the system would collapse. They just don't have the capacity to arrest everyone. 
our entire society is built on this concept of consent and tacit consent. We all through participating in society. I mean, these are old terms. You look at John Locke, you look at Hobbes, the idea of consent, tacit consent. It's the idea that by going about our daily lives and enjoying the fruits of society, we tacitly agree to the rules. Well, if we decide that we don't agree with the rules, it could crumble very, very easily. So I hate when Democrats talk about, oh, oh, the d d democratic institutions, when they talk about voting, like it's some sacrosanct thing that cannot be even regulated. When it comes to the Supreme Court, though, that is an institution that we really, that really, we do rely on faith, having faith in the Supreme Court. There are infamous cases. I mean, look back at, at uh, Abraham Lincoln trying to nationalize the railroad, right? And, and, and the fights between Lincoln and the Supreme Court. You look at other fights between the president and the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court issues a ruling and the president says, okay, I dare them to enforce it. I dare them to enforce it. The minute that you stop believing in the legitimacy of the court and just believing in the legitimacy of the rulings, I mean, the Supreme Court is only as powerful as the law enforcement officers willing to enforce its rulings, which is why, I mean, you look at the, the South in the 1950s and 60s, how hard it was to integrate schools in the South because the governors and, and local police departments refused to do it. So you look at what Eisenhower had to do, and what was it, Little Rock? What Eisenhower had to do, bring in federal troops to force schools to integrate, to bring black students into a predominantly white or entirely white student population. So you, you can see how even when the court rules, if there's no one willing to enforce the ruling, it means nothing. So obviously, that is a very simplistic way of describing faith in the institution. But if you don't have faith in the Supreme Court, if you don't have faith that, that these cases are being decided legitimately, legitimately and free from external influences, then it loses its power. Sure, you might have for a while law enforcement continuing to enforce these rulings and abide by these rulings. But if, if you don't be careful, eventually you could reach a point where just no one cares about the Supreme Court. No one cares about what they say because you know it's corrupt, because you know that they are influenced by outside actors. And that is why this decision got leaked. It really is so dangerous. We cannot live in a society where the majority of the people believe that the Supreme Court can be influenced by protests. That's something that's always confused me about protesting in front of the Supreme Court. One thing to protest in front of the legislature, those senators and, and congressmen, they represent the people. So if they hear the, the protesters outside, there's a, you can make an argument that maybe that would sway their opinion. Obviously, it didn't work on January 6th, but you can make the argument. Supreme Court justices are not beholden to the people. They're not beholden to anyone. Technically, they can be impeached, I guess. Other than that, it's a lifetime appointment. As, as long as they want to be on the bench, they're on the bench. So I, I've always been so confused by why people would protest there. In the last day, though, we've realized why. This was released before the final version was released to deliberately drum up opposition to it. You look at what's happening in D.C., you look at what's happening around the country. Protesters going crazy over this going absolutely bonkers over the idea that the Supreme Court would bring us back to states' rights, would bring us back to states having the authority to decide through the legislative process what kind of medical procedures can and cannot be performed within their boundaries. They're going absolutely nuts. And they're hoping that these protests will do one of two things, either compel the Supreme Court to change its mind, which is something that is terrifying. I mean, just think about the death threats that will now be coming down on these justices because people got a heads up on what the ruling was going to be. It only takes one of those justices to get cold feet or to say, hey, I really think we should add some more exceptions to, before it's completely watered down. That's the one thing you have to fear. The other thing you have to fear is that Congress could preempt this by passing nationwide legislation that would legalize abortion nationwide. Now, I think there would still, absent a Roe versus Wade, if it, if it ends up being overturned, which looks like it will be, a federal law would still probably be challenged by states. States would argue that this is a state's rights issue since the Constitution does not deal with abortion. It's up to the states to decide 
what kind of medical procedures are permitted within their border. So there would be a fight there, but Democrats are hoping that they can preempt any Supreme Court action by making it just preemptively legal nationwide. That would have, again, that would have challenges, but they think that they can, they can do that. The other thing, I guess I said two, technically it's three. The other thing that the legislature, Congress, is now talking about is getting rid of the filibuster and packing the Supreme Court. It's the equivalent of a schoolyard bully taking his ball and going home when he loses the game. That is what Democrats in Congress are now talking about doing. They don't like the ruling. They don't like the 5-4 ruling. So they add two more liberal-minded judges to the bench to create a liberal majority, plus John Roberts. I mean, that's what they're talking about doing, abolishing the filibuster to shove more liberals onto the Supreme Court to ensure that future cases are not decided like this. And then, of course, they would want the Supreme Court to rehear an abortion case and undo this leaked draft. Uh, that's always what they're talking about. So those are the three things that these protests are hoping to accomplish. And we see, we see from legislators that they're biting. At least they are, they are playing into the outrage. This is Elizabeth Warren. I want to read this caption from Will Lowry on Twitter. He says, a visibly shaken and angry Senator Elizabeth Warren just spoke in front of SCOTUS. Why is a legislator speaking in front of the Supreme Court, a supposedly co-equal branch of government? This reminds me, um, what was it, a couple of years ago, last year, a year before, all these years are blending together, when Chuck Schumer and other Democrats were threatening action against the Supreme Court unless they ruled on cases a specific way. It's very strange to see members of the legislative branch now protesting in front of a co-equal Supreme Court. But I want to play this because visibly shaken. I don't know if I buy the visibly shaking bit. But let's go ahead and play this for all of you. I am angry. Angry and upset? Angry and upset and determined. The United States Congress can keep rovers away the law of the land. They just need to do it. I I've never seen you so angry. You seem to be... This is what... The Republicans have been working toward this day for decades. They have been out there plotting, carefully cultivating these Supreme Court justices so they could have a majority on the bench who would accomplish something that the majority of Americans do not want. 69% of people across this country, across this country, red states and blue states, old people and young people, want Roe versus Wade to maintain as the law of the land. The we need to we do it. And we I have listen a to the right. Extremists, we've heard enough from the extremists. And we're tired of So I, I hadn't listened to this all the way. Kudos to that guy jumping in saying we don't want dismembered children in the womb. Remember, when you hear these later-term abortion, when you hear about later-term abortion, either second trimester or into third trimester, the baby has at that point developed. It has arms, legs. It is a human baby by every definition. You look at that and you recognize it as a human. I mean, it's, it's a human from conception. But at that point in development, there really isn't any, any arguing that the baby inside is a human being. The way that abortion, abortionists are able to actually perform these procedures, they can't just take an entire baby out. In many cases, they have to dismember the baby by cutting its limbs off, pulling it out of the womb limb by limb, and then it's up to the doctors and nurses to make sure that they got all the body parts. Can't leave any body parts behind. That is the scourge of abortion that we're going to be talking about because this Mississippi law would explicitly ban those procedures. And Mississippi law, in its explanation for why it exists, talks about the barbarity of these kinds of procedures. But you can hear Elizabeth Warren here saying, whoa, 60-something percent of Americans disagree. Okay, then 60-something percent of Americans should go to their state legislatures and get them to pass laws. I think what you will find is, yeah, sure, in places like California and New York and Illinois, you will find large majorities of people who believe that abortion should remain legal. But when you get into Texas, Florida, Georgia... Louisiana, 
right? Even, even into Iowa, right? I mean, the, the heartland, you will find that abortion does not have 60% support, which is what this Supreme Court ruling, if it stands, if it ends up being the final ruling, what it would do, it would send it back to the states. The states get to get to decide. And then it's up to all of us, take all of the states that decide wrong, incorrectly, and convince them to change their ways. Convince them to change their ways. So that was Elizabeth Warren. Um, Elizabeth Warren, uh, visibly agitated and angry, wanting the Supreme Court to engage the way a legislature would. Very angry. And she's talking about that legislative fix I just mentioned, Congress legalizing abortion nationwide. So let's, let's dive into some of this case. I don't want to stay too long here. Um, I know it's getting late at night, but I, I want to cover some of the parts. Yeah, you've, you've heard the other ones, the ones that Politico highlighted in yellow. Those, uh, we'll talk about a couple of those. But there's a few different parts of this Dodds uh, v. Jackson draft decision that I really want to cover. And the first one is one of those ones that Politico highlighted, but it's important to discuss. This is towards the beginning. This draft decision says, quote, we hold that Roe and Casey, Planned Parenthood v. Casey, it's a, it's a subsequent decision, must be overruled. The Constitution makes no reference to abortion, and no such right is implicitly protected by any constitutional provision, including the one on which the defenders of Roe and Casey now chiefly rely, the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment. That provision has been held to guarantee some rights that are not mentioned in the Constitution, but any such right must be, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition and, quote, implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. So when you look at the Bill of Rights, it's not just the 14th Amendment, but you look at the 9th and the 10th Amendment. Those two amendments within the Bill of Rights, they're, they're basically there to ensure everyone understands that the first eight amendments of the Bill of Rights are not an exhaustive list, that the founders did not just give the citizens eight rights. There are more that are not listed, that are not mentioned. And the Ninth and Tenth Amendment ensure that it, that's plainly obvious that there are other unenumerated rights and that those rights belong to the people and in some cases to the states. The Fourteenth Amendment guarantees due process under law. It means that you cannot be deprived of your liberties without due process. Well, the Supreme Court has, has taken that phrase and on multiple occasions has defined liberty to include things that the founders never would have thought should be included. So there's a part in this. I'm going to see if I can. I don't actually, I don't know if I, if I did it, but let's go to this one. When Roe versus Wade was decided, there were 30 states that still prohibited abortion at all stages of development, except to save the life of the mother. And though Roe discerned a, tr a trend towards liberalization in about one-third of the states, those states still criminalized some abortions and regulated them more stringently than Roe would have allowed. In short, the court's opinion in Roe itself convincingly refutes the notion that the abortion liberty is deeply rooted in the history and tradition of our people. There's another part. I thought I grabbed it. I didn't. Talking about 19, 1868. Is that when the 14th Amendment? I think that's when the 14th Amendment was ratified. 1868. In 1868... Almost every, I think it actually was every state criminalized abortion either, either entirely or pretty much most abortions. So to argue that the 14th Amendment protected a right of abortion when at the time of the 14th Amendment's ratification, there was no such thing as legalized abortion. That's just fanciful. It's not true. When you look at just this passage I just read, when you look at Roe when it was decided at the time, the majority of states did not legalize abortion. And even the ones that did heavily restricted late-term abortion and other kinds of abortion procedures, well, strict, uh, like significantly stricter than what Roe ultimately required. So to say that, that Roe versus Wade, the actual tenet, tenets within Roe versus Wade, have some kind of historical basis that People have the right to an abortion. And if you look at Planned Parenthood versus Casey, that there is a right to protect people from undue burdens that would prohibit them from exercising that right because that's what that subsequent case found. It just doesn't exist in our history. It's not there. Here's another passage talking about that. 
Until the latter part of quote, until the latter part of the 20th century, there was no support in American law for a constitutional right to obtain an abortion. Zero. Period. None. Period. I like that that phrase. I, I hope that that doesn't get edited out. This seems like it's a little bit stream of consciousness, but I love that style. There is no support in American law for a constitutional right to obtain an abortion. Zero. None. No state constitutional. Uh, continuing. No state constitutional provision had recognized such a right until a few years before Roe was handing down. No federal or state court had recognized such a right, nor had any scholarly treatise of which we are aware. And although law review articles are not reticent about advocating new rights, the earliest article proposing a constitutional right to abortion that has come to our attention was published only a few years before Roe. Not only was there no support for such a constitutional right until shortly before Roe, but abortion had long been a crime in every single state. This is what I was just mentioning. I think I actually did grab it. At common law, abortion was criminal in at least some stages of pregnancy and was regarded as unlawful and could have very serious consequences at all stages. American law followed the common law until a wave of statutory restrictions in the 1800s expanded criminal liability for abortion. By the time of the adoption, as so I was mentioning, by the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment, three quarters of the states had made abortion a crime at any stage of pregnancy, and the remaining states would soon follow. So see, I did. I did pull it. I just didn't name it right <laughs> for, my, for my list of, of images. When the 14th Amendment was ratified, three quarters of the states had made abortion a crime, and the rest were going to do so shortly after. You can't argue there, therefore, that 14th Amendment... Uh, an amendment designed to ensure that African-Americans would be afforded full citizenship. You cannot then use that to justify a right that did not exist at the time. It was not even on anyone's radar. And if you look at the law, it was either banned or would shortly be banned in every single state. So there's no historical, there's no historical um, evidence for a right to have an abortion. And this is the problem. When you, when you look at, oh, what's the other case? Is it Griswold v. Connecticut? That is equally egregious. Equally egregious. I mean, so Connecticut had one of the last remaining, I think it's Griswold versus Connecticut. I want to make sure I get it right. I'm writing my next book, and it, coincidentally, it is Griswold versus Connecticut. Coincidentally, it is on abortion, the conservative's guide to winning every abortion argument, which I, mean, I guess I, I'm glad I didn't write that first because it would have been completely, <laughs> it would have been completely overturned here. In Griswold v. Connecticut, that was a case that preceded Roe v. Wade. And Connecticut had one of the last standing state laws outlawing contraceptives. So you had a Planned Parenthood, I believe it was in New Haven, a Planned Parenthood clinic decided to fight against that law and they deliberately broke it for decades. They tried to bring a couple cases to the Supreme Court and they kept losing on technicalities. Eventually, Griswold v. Connecticut reached the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court invented a right out of thin air. They invented the right to marital privacy. Now, if you ask me, should marital privacy be a right? Yeah, I think that that's a safe right, a safe bet, but it's nowhere in the Constitution, the idea of marital privacy, that, that husband and wife can just do whatever they want in any way they want. That, that's, what the, that's what the Supreme Court invented in Griswold v. Connecticut. And they say that because of a pre-existing natural right to marital, marital privacy, Connecticut could not ban contraceptives for married people. Now, it only took a couple years before that was expanded to say you had non-marital privacy. State can't ban contraceptives for unmarried people. It didn't take long before that fell. The actual ruling in Griswold v. Connecticut is significant because it predates many of the arguments we see today when it comes to uh, abortion. The idea that it has to be legalized because it's medically necessary. There are a few cases where, um, where contraceptives would be considered medically necessary. I mean, a lot of people get put on, um, a lot of women get put on uh, the pill uh, for acne, for different other uh, hormonal imbalances. So there are lots of legitimate reasons to prescribe birth control to women. Um, the case also argued that there were women who had had uh, in, 
serious ailments, serious diseases, serious complications that would make getting pregnant very dangerous. So they need to be on contraceptive. All those can be legitimate arguments for exceptions, but that's not what the Supreme Court did. They ruled in totality that you had this invented right to marital privacy, marital, marital privacy, because it was considered medically necessary. Fast forward a few years, and that's what ends up being used for Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade was terribly, terribly decided. And anyone who's honest, even some liberals will look at Roe versus Wade and they will agree that it never should have been decided that way. That the Supreme Court never should have intervened, thrown out 50 different state laws on abortion, and imposed their own system of deciding what abortions were legal and what were not. I mean, at Roe versus Wade, they came up with this concept of viability. Viability is the point at which a baby can survive outside the womb with or without medical assistance. So when Roe versus Wade was decided, they determined that viability was somewhere between 26 weeks and 28 weeks. That's what the medical science of the 1970s would allow for a premature baby. Premature baby at 26 to 28 weeks gestation could survive. I think they, I think they originally came out with 27, but plus or minus one. I was born premature, not that premature, but I was born premature. Today, there are adults who were born at 21 weeks and a few days gestation. So the idea that we should somehow be linked to the 1970s definition of what constitutes a human being based on what medical technology at the time could do to help keep premature babies alive, it's insane. What's even more insane is neither side of Roe versus Wade advocated for this kind of system. Neither side wanted the Supreme Court to declare a new scheme involving viability. The Supreme Court did it anyway. They did it anyway, and they invented it out of thin air. Just like Griswold v. Connecticut came up with marital privacy, the Supreme Court decided in Roe v. Wade that <laughs> the Constitution also protects a right to just basic privacy. And, and in doing so, a right to have an abortion. So that's where we've been at. And I want to show this, this part of the decision. I, I showed a little bit of this today, but I want to read more of it. This is part of the, the draft version of the Dodds v. Jackson um, draft bill for the Mississippi law, talking about what I'm talking about, what I'm describing as like the viability paradox. It doesn't make sense. It says, quote, the most obvious problem with any such argument is that viability is heavily dependent on factors that have nothing to do with the characteristics of a fetus. One is the state of neonatal care at a particular point in time, what I was just talking about. Due to the development of new equipment and improved practices, the viability line has changed over the years. In the 19th century, a fetus may not have been viable until 32 or 33 weeks after conception or even later. When Roe, v, when Roe was decided, viability was gauged at roughly 28 weeks. See, right around what I said. Today, respondents draw the line at 23 weeks or 24 weeks. The brief of respondents at eight. So according to Roe's logic, states now have a compelling interest in protecting a fetus with a gestational age of, say, 26 weeks. But in 1973, states did not have an interest in protecting an identical fetus. How can that be? This is the part I really like, the logic of it. Quote, viability also de depends on the quality of the available medical facilities. Thus, a 24-week-old fetus may be viable if a woman gives birth in a city with hospitals that provide advanced care for very premature babies. But if the woman travels to a remote area far from any such hospital, the fetus may no longer be viable. On what ground? Could the constitutional status of a fetus depend on a pregnant woman's location? I love that because, quite frankly, I had never thought of the issue that way. I've thought about viability in terms of this, this race to zero, right? This idea that as medical technology advances, eventually all abortion will be outlawed because all babies could survive outside the womb with medical attention. But this idea... This idea that someone in the middle of the desert, without access to, to medical uh, top-rate medical facilities, should be allowed to ab abort a baby further along um, in the gestational development than someone right next to a world-class hospital. How can that be the definition of personhood?
Because realize that's what we're talking about here. When in the womb, an unborn baby is afforded the rights of personhood, the right to exist. How can proximity to good hospitals determine that? I mean, you can see how that kind of logic could be very, very dangerous. What about people who are, are born with severe, uh, severe disabilities? Are we to suggest that they lose their personhood if they no longer live near a hospital that can keep them alive? Of course not. They are inherently a person. They are a human being. From the moment that they are conceived, from the moment God knew them, they are a human being. It is obvious. Proximity to world-class medical facilities should have nothing to do with that, which is why I love this part, because it's not just good enough to overturn Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. It's not good enough just to get what we, what we want. It has to be overturned in a way that is so logical, so well-founded, so well-supported that the, the Supreme Court can't just turn around in two years with a packed bench full of liberal justices and overturn it. Right? It, it can't just be, oh, well, we think Roe versus Wade was bad, so here you go. It's gone. And that's why I, I spent the night reading this, as well as going through Linwood's <laughs> telegram chats. But I spent the night reading this, and I think this does an excellent job of not just overturning Roe versus Wade, but doing so in a manner that will make it harder and harder for future Supreme Courts to overturn it or for other activist judges to chip away at it. There's a provision in here. Let's just talk about this. Stare decisis. Stare decisis is the legal concept that you are generally bound to precedent. Not president, precedent. P-R-E-C-E-D-E-N-T. That's the idea that when the Supreme Court makes a decision, you can't just overturn it. Abortion advocates. And I, and I, I don't use the term of choice. I don't use the term pro-choice because I do not believe that killing is ever, ever a choice. I don't believe that taking an innocent life is ever a choice, with the exception of very rare circumstances like a mass casualty event and doing triage, No, hum or maybe in another rare example of a judge uh, coming down with a death penalty case. Nowhere else in our society does anyone ever have the choice to decide whether someone lives or dies. Even self-defense, justified homicides where someone is fearing for their life and use deadly force to kill an attacker, there is no choice there. Because the way the law is written, people in that situation where they're in fear for their life, where they're being attacked, where they might be killed, the law states that they have no choice, right? The homicide is justifiable because they have no choice. They have no choice but to defend themselves because otherwise they could be killed. I do not believe in the term pro-choice because I do not believe that it is ever a choice. It is ever a choice to kill someone. I mean, murderers do it, but it's illegal. It's illegal. So sorry, decisis. Sorry, I just got a little sidetracked because I said pro-choice and hated myself for it. Sorry, decisis is not just set in stone because there are plenty of Supreme Court rulings that are abominable. I mean, just look at Plessy versus Ferguson. Plessy versus Ferguson is the Supreme Court case that declared racial discrimination is okay, A-OK. -okay. It's constitutional as long as the accommodations for white and black people were equal. They could be separate, but equal. So a town in Alabama could have one bathroom for white people, one bathroom for black people, but they had to be equal bathrooms. They can't be porta potties for black people and golden toilets for white people. Separate but equal. Plessy versus Ferguson is one of the most egregious, disgusting Supreme Court rulings that this country has ever seen. I mean, it's up there with the Supreme Court ruling um, deciding that internment camps for Japanese was okay. Those are those usually battle back and forth for the worst in our history. Plessy versus Ferguson was abominable. What was it? I think it was 1955. Is that when Rosa, I think it was 55 in the fifties when Rosa Parks got on that bus by Montgomery, when she got on that bus and she refused to sit in the black section and, and took her seat in the white traveler section of the bus. At that point, Plessy versus Ferguson understood as the one of the, one of, if not the worst 
Supreme Court decisions in our history, Plessy versus Ferguson had been on the books longer when she decided to sit in the white section than Roe versus Wade has been in effect today. I'll say that again. When Rosa Parks challenged the, the requirement that she only sit in the black section, the Supreme Court ruling upholding those separate but equal discrimination policies had been in effect longer than, than Roe versus Wade has been in effect today. It's a big deal because the way you hear Democrats and liberals say it, they say that because Roe versus Wade will turn 50 years old next year, because of that, because it's reached 50 years, it should be considered presumptively constitutional presumptively valid. That is a term that we see time and time again when liberals want to defend the most egregious of their policies. This comes up a lot when you, when you talk about gun laws, laws prohibiting concealed carry. Thank goodness the Supreme Court looks poised to overturn those concealed carry bans around the country in just a couple of weeks um, by the end of this term. But when Democrats defend those bans on on bans blocking people's ability to defend themselves outside the home, they say, oh, these, have, these laws have been on the books so long, they are presumptively constitutional. Meaning that because they weren't overturned, we just, we're just going to assume that they're, they're good to go. And you shouldn't look at them because they're good to go. They want you to think about Roe versus Wade that way. They want you to think about Roe versus Wade as some storied... They, they want, when you think about Roe versus Wade, they want you to think about a, a ruling so old that it had to be written on stone tablets because paper didn't even exist. They want you to think that Roe versus Wade is just in our DNA as a nation, when in reality, it's less than 50 years old. It's less than 50 years old, and there have been disgusting Supreme Court cases that were overturned that had been on the books longer than Roe versus Wade. So stare decisis, this idea that because precedent, you have to follow it, doesn't apply here. Because Roe versus Wade was egregious the minute that it was decided. And there is no legal or jurisprudential foundation for this decision. And it never should have been allowed to be on the books this long. So I, I want to talk a bit about the good things. So th these are the arguments, right? Roe versus Wade was horribly decided. It's not scientific. Sorry, sorry, decisis is not real in this case because it was a bad decision. I want to talk about what this is going to do. Yes, it is going to legalize, uh, it's going to ban, not ban abortion, but it's going to get rid of the federal blanket protection for abortion as a medical procedure. Abortion will become just like any other medical procedure at the federal level. Now, Congress will be able to regulate that. I guess conceivably, you could have a Republican Congress and a Republican president pass legislation outlawing abortion nationwide, the same way that federal law can prohibit certain types of experimental procedures or certain types of inhumane or unethical procedures. But what will happen is there will no longer be a federal blanket protection for the procedure. So it'll, it will be up to states. Unless Congress passes a law, which we, I will be fighting tooth and nail Make sure that doesn't happen. Um, I don't. I can't say the same about every other organization. I know that Conservative Daily put something out today about Afghan refugees and Ukraine aid. Seems a little strange considering the gravity of this, but I'm sure that they will cover that in subsequent days. We're going to fight like hell to make sure they don't legalize abortion nationwide through law, but it'll go back to the states and... The states, it'll be up to the states to decide. So you'll have, there's a couple different ways this is going to happen. You have states that already have, re right now, technically redundant laws on the books, mirroring Roe versus Wade to ensure that if Roe is um, abolished, they'll still have abortion up to and even beyond what they have now. There are states that have Roe versus Wade on the book, uh, anti-abortion laws, still on the books. Talked a little bit about this earlier today on the previous episode that includes Michigan, I mean, Michigan has a pre-Roe versus Wade ban on abortion that would snap into effect if this ruling comes down. Can Michigan pass a different legislation? I don't know. I don't know if there is appetite in the Michigan legislature. I know there is in the governor's mansion. Not sure if the legislature would be able to do that in time. We'll see. 
So there's the pre-existing anti-abortion laws that predate Roe. There are also now what are called trigger laws. These are states that have already passed legislation that basically says if Roe versus Wade is abolished, X, Y, and Z immediately go into effect. Sure enough, these are states that say abortion will be banned. There are now other states, like as I mentioned earlier, South Dakota, Florida, that want to ban abortion there as well, but that wouldn't be a triggering that would happen after the Supreme Court ruling. So it would be up to the states. And st every state will have different laws. Every state will have different requirements. Some states, like Texas, will say six weeks. Maybe Texas will ban it entirely. Who knows? Who knows? It'll be up to the states. It'll be up to state legislatures to listen to their constituents and to craft laws that are in the best interest of their state. Not some unelected justice trying to legislate from the bench. So that's going to happen. We know that's going to happen. What's also going to happen is it's going to change the way that abortion laws are challenged in the court by changing the, the, the standard of review used to decide whether or not it's legal or constitutional. This is from the uh, draft decision, quote, under our precedents, rational basis review is the appropriate standard for such challenges to abortion laws after this ruling. As we have explained Procuring an abortion is not a fundamental constitutional right because no such right has a so such a right has no basis in the Constitution's text or the nation's history. It follows that the states may regulate abortion for legitimate reasons, and when such regulations are challenged under the Constitution's courts cannot quote substitute their social and economic beliefs for the judgment of legislative bodies end quote. That respect for a legislature's judgment applies even when the laws at issue concern matters of great social significance and moral substance, end quote. This is important. And Bamalema just wrote in the Rumble Rants, don't forget to hit the Rumble button. Yes, please don't forget to hit the Rumble button. <laughs> this is important because this is basically setting the roadmap, putting guardrails on activist judges so that when, if and when, this draft ruling becomes law, it becomes read from the bench and finalized, these guardrails would prevent activist district judges and activist appellate judges from trying to pick holes in this new ruling by explicitly stating that they cannot substitute their social and economic beliefs for the judgment of legislative bodies and they cannot um, rule from the bench just because they think it's an issue of social significance and moral substance. It is firmly is firmly in the legislature's purview to decide whether or not these laws should stand. In Mississippi, obviously, if Mississippi wins the case, then Mississippi wins the case. Interestingly, I, I liked how this draft talked about Mississippi because it is very, very, very honest. It says, quote, these legitimate interests justify Mississippi's gestational age act, except, quote, in a medical emergency or in a case of severe fetal abnormality, quote, the statute prohibits abortion, quote, if the probable gestational age of the unborn human being has been determined to be greater than 15 weeks, end quote. The Mississippi legislature's findings recount the stages of human prenatal development and assert the state's interest in, quote, protecting the life of the unborn, end quote. The legislature also found that abortions performed after 15 weeks typically used the dilation and evacuation procedure, and the legislature found the use of this procedure quote, for non-therapeutic or elective reasons, to be a barbaric practice. Continuing, dangerous for the maternal patient and demeaning to the medical profession. These legitimate interests provide a rational basis for the Gestational Age Act, and it follows that respondents' constitutional challenge must fail. Let me explain what that means. It's not just that the Supreme Court is saying Roe versus Wade is bad. It's gone. What the Supreme Court is saying is that laws like Mississippi's, laws like Mississippi's that say abortion procedures are a barbaric practice and, quote, dangerous for the maternal patient and, quote, demeaning to the medical profession must be allowed to stand. That federal law and the federal constitution cannot overrule a state legislature's ability to make this determination. This is important because it, again, is setting the stage for future laws, future challenges to go this same way. 
again, it's not just the fact that Roe versus Wade is being repealed, being reversed. It is how the court is doing it. And this draft does an excellent job of making sure that it's reversed in a way that protects abortion restrictions from having to fight in the lower courts with activist judges. Lastly, I want to read the conclusion because I liked it. The conclusion says, quote, we end this opinion where we began. Abortion presents a profound moral question. The Constitution does not prohibit the citizens of each state from regulating or prohibiting abortion. Roe and Casey arrogated that authority. We now overrule those decisions and return that authority to the people and their elective representatives. The judgment of the Fifth Circuit is reversed and the case is remanded for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. Talking about states that are going to try and pass laws in the description, I do have a link to a website called abortiontofar.com. This is an organization I am now working with to try and fight back against California's disgusting bill, AB2223, which again tries to get out in front of what the Supreme Court is doing to protect abortionists. And it goes so far, it is absolutely disgusting. It protects abortion after birth. What does that mean? If a baby dies within the perinatal period, which is the first 28 days of that baby's life, and the baby's death can be traced to a pregnancy cause or pregnancy issue, the mother is shielded from any civil or criminal liability. Why is that disgusting? Because technically, a pregnancy-related outcome, a pregnancy-related cause, can be postpartum depression. So if a mother kills her baby in the first four weeks and doctors say that she did it because she had postpartum depression, technically that's a pregnancy-related cause and technically she would be shielded from any civil or criminal liabilities for killing her child, a born-alive baby outside the womb up to four weeks after the baby's born. Coroners would not be allowed to investigate the baby, the baby's death, as being, as being a murder because it would be traced back to a pregnancy-related outcome. This is a disgusting bill, so I encourage everyone, whether you live in California or not, please do sign the petition. Link is in the description, abortiontofar.com, abortion, T-O-O, far.com. Sign the petition and help us defeat this disgusting, disgusting legislation. Also going to mention that if you haven't already, make sure you do pick up my book. (laughs) It's not on abortion, but I've talked here about a couple of different cases, including Heller, um, talking about basic constitutional rights. That's in this book. I highly recommend it. The Conservative's Guide to Winning Every Gun Control Argument. It is a thick book. This is like a textbook. It's available on Amazon. Soon to be available on Barnes & Noble. Let me check to see if it's available. Refresh the page, see if they finished it. They're taking their sweet time. At the top of it, it says, due to COVID-19, printing processing is delayed. I, I don't buy it, but that's their excuse. It soon will be available on Barnes & Noble as well. So stay tuned for that. I will, I will put that out on, yeah, it's not, not available yet. I will put that out on my Telegram as soon as it is approved and processed. So this is a big deal. What, what's happening in the Supreme Court is a big deal. And they wouldn't have leaked it if it wasn't so monumentally important. So what do you have to do now? One, hit the rumble button if you're watching live, if you haven't. If not, if you're not watching live, make sure you share this audio podcast. You got to share this. You got to share this with like-minded people because the info war against this draft ruling is real. The media is trying to present this as some radical opinion. When in reality, this is all well-grounded in our history and in basic logic and law. So please do share this with like-minded people. Share this video with people who are on the other side. Or maybe people are in the middle, don't quite know where they stand yet. Share this podcast, help us reach more people so they can understand what's about to happen and why this is so very important. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe to the audio version of my podcast. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Podbean, and Audible. All those links are in the description as well. If you have an iPhone, an iPad, or a MacBook, please do leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help me climb up in those rankings. I really do need your help. And that's the easiest way to do it. This podcast goes live. Usually this is a special edition because we had this big thing. I didn't want to bump Josh this morning. Usually we go live 1 p.m. Eastern, Monday through Friday. So tune in for that. 
Um, lastly, I do want to say, I do want to apologize. Today on the show, there was a, a moment where Josh seemed a little flustered and started looking uncomfortable um, what, based on what he told me. Conservative Daily employees were texting him and he was getting a ton of calls. It was making him very uncomfortable, texting him basically saying, why are you on Max show? Why are you participating in this BS? That kind of stuff um, made him very uncomfortable. And he kind of clammed up a bit. Um, so I talked to him after he's very, very angry. This is something that does not happen in the podcast space. You do not call up another show's guest while they're on the air and put pressure on them or intimidate them into being silent or getting off the air. That is unheard of. That is that is really bad. It, and to do it to an ex-employee um, it is definitely a form of harassment. I, I hope it never happens again. I've never heard of it. Um, but I wanted to apologize. Josh is going to be coming on my show more often now, not talking about conservative daily issues. I don't want to talk about conservative daily issues. I want to talk about issues that matter. There's sometimes I feel it's absolutely necessary to call a spade a spade, but Josh will be on subsequent episodes. I think he wants to come on every week. So I think we're going to have him on again next week, not to talk about conservative daily, uh, but to talk about conservative issues because he is very smart, is good head on, on, is good head on his shoulders. And uh, me and him have a great rapport. We can kind of bounce back and forth and talk about things without it becoming a, an ego contest. So stay tuned for that. I just did want to say, if you noticed that Josh was uncomfortable, um, I wanted to explain why. It wasn't me going down a path that he wasn't comfortable with. I walked through everything before the show of what he was comfortable with, what he didn't want to talk about. It was the pressure he, you know, he was getting through texts and through phone calls. So I um, just wanted to explain that. And uh, yeah. You can interpret that as you will. That's going to be it for this edition of the Max McGuire Show. My name is Max McGuire. Remember, everyone, the fight to take back our country is not over yet, but the only way we win is if we all snap and fight together. See you tomorrow.